It is Thursday, the 18th of February, 2021. We have an amazing guest on the show today, so pitter-patter, let's get at her. You're listening to the Handsome Genius Club Radio Show. Hey kids, welcome to the show. My name is Kingdom, Anthony Kingdom James. Our guest on today's Handsome Genius Club is a musician, a journalist, a playwright, a filmmaker, an environmentalist, a community activist, and a prolific author. Am I missing anything on this lengthy list? Uh, the publisher of the West End Phoenix newspaper in Toronto and a founding member of the band The Rio Statics. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Dave Bedini to the Handsome Genius Club radio show. Hey, Dave. Hey, Handsome. Amazing. How's it going? (laughs) Pretty good. How are you, sir? Two good-looking guys on the phone talking about stuff. It's good. (laughs) Um, Things are fine. Things are fine. Yeah. As fine as they can be, I guess. You know know how it is. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit. Are are you enjoying enjoying the snowstorm? Oh, yeah. I love snow. Snow's the best. Good. It's not killer snow. It's just good normal it's good it's good winter snow it's good winter it's been a great in that way like it was funny we were out in the ice yesterday and we were saying how it's kind like this you know erase covid and look at this winter it's kind of been a perfect winter because it's been a lot of sun for a lot of sunlight for this winter the 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 temperatures have been cold enough that there's been a lot of ice so a lot of skating which is great and we're kind of getting our we're not getting too much snow we're just no. getting some nicely timed snowfalls. So, I don't know. It's good. It's nice to not complain about the weather. <laughs> Being as it is, right? Good. Good. I, yeah, but, I mean, there's a difference between not complaining about the weather and being distracted by something much larger. Exactly. This is very true. Yes, you make a good point. It's true. All right. So, my my first real question to you, and please take this in the spirit in which it is asked, sir. What kind of lunatic throws his weight into print journalism in the 21st century? Well, it's funny, you know, like, uh, it goes back to, it goes back to the counterintuitive nature of punk music and early 80s Toronto, really, mm-hmm. if you want to, if you want to get down to it, because that's when we started our band, like our first show was in 1980 at the Edge on October 17th. And, you know, back then, you could count on one hand, the number of clubs in the city that booked music that wasn't either Triumph or, <laughs> or a cover band, right? Like, there was, there was so like, if there were if there were 17 weirdo musicians in Toronto, you knew them all, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there was something in those early days about, you know, uh, 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 chugging in the water, you know, against uh, crashing into the waves rather than surfing on them, right? So that's always been kind of way deep in the DNA of what I've always sort of tried to do artistically. And so when it came time to look at, news and look at journalism and look at reporting and look at writing in 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 20 well 2017 which is when we started it was like oh sure we could you know launch a local news website or we could you know create a blog or we could blah 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 go this way or hey what about a newspaper hmm, they're pretty they're pretty cool <laughs> newspapers are pretty cool yeah and then um so once it was interesting too because you know once we started to talk to people about that narrative it was just it was just one it was just a narrative that that was that that was had been sort of forgotten for long enough that it seemed kind of new to people so in that way it kind of grabbed people's imaginations, and really, it was the enthusiasm of the community that made us decide that it would be a good idea to start a paper, basically. And uh, for for the first three years of the paper, you were based at the Gladstone Hotel. Yes, we How were. Does that well, happen? that's a big piece, actually. About um, well, well, that actually comes back to hockey because uh, my uh, our, our 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 managing editor who is also my wife, um, mm-hmm. Janet Morissuti. She plays with the 
with the Mary Max. It's a women's recreational hockey team uh, that came out of a Thursday skate that they all had at McCormick Arena. And um, they played hockey um, with Christina Zeidler. And um, Christina Zeidler, as, as, as you may or may not know, was the owner of the Gladstone Hotel. So when we, when we started talking about the, the newspaper, you know, in and around the dressing room, Christina was like, hey, got a room for you you know if you want to move in we've got they do they did artist residencies right they were deeply supportive of you know people that were doing interesting things in different disciplines and um so they had a room for us we were supposed to say eight months we ended up staying three years this is how these sort of things happen and um it was so it was christina that really helped helped us you know we were we were we were on an artist artist residency rent-free for that long and the paper might not have been able to, able to survive otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, at the same time I had, um, the rheostatics old lighting director, um, had, had become a, a printmaker, um, ran a large print shop, um, uh, Guillermo del Toro's sort of personal print designer for all of his films. He became pretty successful in that field. When he heard we were starting a newspaper, he was like, Oh, I want to print this for you for free. So a lot of, yeah, a lot of, you know, great largesse and generosity and support from, uh, from people who just were into what we were doing really helped allay a lot of the costs. And, um, and, and we, you know, and, and allowed us those sort of floating foundations that we were able to stand on before we could really move forward, you know? So yeah, it was great to just have them come in and help. You, you mentioned your wife working on the newspaper with you. Uh, does that family connection also explain how you're able to convince a former Globe and Mail editor to come on board, Melanie Morissuti, who is, just happens to be your sister-in-law? Yeah. Uh, I work with my wife and my sister-in-law, so I should get an award of some kind. <laughs> um, I've got, I've, uh, yeah, uh, still standing. Um, How often are you vetoed? (laughs) Oh, dude, I I might as well have a giant V tattooed on my forehead. I'm. um, It's interesting, like the uh, you know, without getting too personal, you know, Mm -hmm. having a having a a home a a family shop is um, it's great because you have such shorthand with each other. You know, there's no, there was none of that. Well, here we are, a bunch of people that are starting to get to know each other, figuring out our d- dynamic. There's none of that. Yeah. Like w- immediately, like the dynamic had been established, right? So there's that. But at the same time, because we love each other and because we're family, you're, you know, you're brutal, brutally honest. You know, there's nobody's, nobody's dancing around anybody's feelings, right? It's like, rah. so it's, it's quite, it's, it's, so that's, and listen, and that's, not, that doesn't come with a typical workplace, right? There mm-hmm. can be a real weight to that, but but ultimately it's, it's been great, you know, because we are so close. Um, and both, and really, listen. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, I'm I write, you know, I write books. I'm a rhythm guitar player, um, and but they're like they are hardened, you know, Janet and Melanie are hardened editorial you know, uh, uh, veterans of that, of that, of that world, you know, they, they're able to really, to put this paper together. You know, I can be a bit of a goofy dreamer and say, what about this? What about that? What about this? But in terms of the assemblage, in terms of the, you know, vision, uh, you know, uh, the the anatomy of how it all works, you know, we, we bend to them to, um, to, to make it, make it, uh, make it real. So it's a nice balance, I think, in in that way. And that's to say nothing of the other people on staff as well. You know, whether it's our Lisa Kovaleski is our art director, and you know, um, Jelani Morgan is our uh, photography editor, photo editor. He's amazing. And um, and and right on down the line, I won't list everybody, but it's it's great to have such an incredible, um, interesting creative group to yeah. to rely on. You talk you know? about you talk about being a goofy dreamer. So what was the original idea before you write the first article before you go to print mm-hmm. what was the original idea in your head behind the west end phoenix what were you 
hoping to accomplish? And what is it now? What is the difference between vision and reality? That's a good question. Um, I'll try to not. <clears throat> I'll try to not drive too far out in the country when answering this question. <laughs> but but I'll start uh, uh, kind of far away. I was. Um, Oh, in 2013, uh, I was looking to write a, another book. Um, my publisher, uh, McClellan and Stewart, you know, we were talking about, you know, what do, what do you want to write about next, Dave? And uh, this, is a, this was my 13th book. So, I, you know, I've been around, you know, I've done that before. So we sat down and chatted and I had a bunch of ideas and I sat down with my editor, Scott Sellers, and uh, he said, oh, well, got anything else? So I was like, "What? Well, just gave you five ideas. Didn't like any of them." So then I said, "Well, what are, I was thinking of writing about a book about the North?" Um, and he was like, "Oh, this is fantastic. How would you write about it?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. I said I wanted to write a, a city book about the North. I didn't want to write about um, like out on the land, you know, a, a paddling. But that's not my thing. So I thought, you know, cities in the North are interesting. How do they work?" So. He was like, where would you go? I said, I'd like to go to Yellowknife because I'd been there once before and I had an amazing time. It's an incredible city. And um, and so he said, fine. And, but I had to figure out a way to get to know the city relatively fast um, and in short order. And that's when I got the idea to, to, to apply or to contact them to see if um, I could write for them. So uh, I called them up and uh, they seemed uh, more than willing to um, to accommodate me. So I moved to Yellowknife. And I worked as a as a as a quasi reporter. I wasn't really doing hard news, but I was in the newsroom every day, and I loved being in the newsroom, and I loved produ- making this newspaper. And Yellowknife, anyways, is it's still it's still always 1974 Yellowknife. Like <laughs> really, it hasn't really. I mean. God bless it, right? But it's so remote from anything that it can be a bit hermetic in terms of its culture and its feel. And um, so, so uh, the print newspaper, the Yellow Knifer, is still a big. It's a big concern, and no word of a lie, Anthony. When I was there, I one of my jobs was to write the weather. So oh, the, on the God. front page, yeah, and it's so interesting. At least it was, and maybe it's changed a little bit in the last couple of years. But the internet internet sucks you're not really connected to anything so if you want to know on wednesday what the weather's going to be like on thursday you read tuesday's newspaper right so the one of my one of my gigs was to write the weather so i did stuff like that but when i when i came back to toronto after after doing my uh my work up there and while i was writing the book i kind of went like hmm, newspapers and then i looked around our neighborhood in the west end and i realized all of the community newspapers, you know, which originally would have covered the Rheostatics in the early 1980s, the Etobicoke Guardian, Etobicoke Gazette, all of those all of those papers were bought en masse by Metroland, which is the parent company yeah. of the Toronto Star, yeah. and basically they're fucking destroyed. Like they fired everyone, they gouged all the content out, and they wrapped the papers in Canadian Tire flyers. Like that's, you know, and they were not they 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 were uh, they were offend they offended my sensibilities when I would come home because. What most people were doing was they were picking up this newspaper on their front porch and putting them right in the blue boxes because there was nothing to read it and read in it. So I thought, well, what if, what if there was actually, what if we had a chance to reinvent the community newspaper? That was part of it. Like, what if we, what if that thing that tumbled up on your porch was something that you were so looking forward to reading because you, when you opened it, you knew that you would have, you know, Michael Winter writing about your butcher or, you know, or Claudia Day writing about um, Dufferin Grove Park or so on. It's like great writers who all of whom live in the neighborhood writing about the, you know, the, the, um, the, um, you know, pe- peeking between the houses to get the stories of our neighbors and the people who lived where we do. So I started to canvas, you know, I made up little fridge magnets. It was a real ground game. I knocked on doors and I asked people about uh, about a, a newspaper whether they'd be interested, and I sold subscriptions. So I sold a, a, a hundreds of, of subscriptions without ever having a paper, yeah. and um, it was great. And and it's fascinating for me too. Like I got to know my neighborhoods and my community so well by being on front porches. It was like canvassing. We're like, we're like running for uh, running for office only. I was running for newspaper, right? So, um, and, you know, we had people like Margaret Atwood and other people um, who who uh, donated and patronized. And as soon as I start to talk about the paper on social media and do some call-outs, uh, there seemed to be real support for it. So that was, you know, four and a half years ago. And um, 
now, you know, here we are. It's interesting uh, trying to figure out um, how we become, because in the beginning, our pieces were less news, less hard tack news, mm-hmm. more kind of longer, more literary kind of reads that you could read right at the end, sort of any time of the year about about the shopkeepers in your neighborhoods and that sort of thing. But now we're trying to now we're moving a little bit more towards actual news. And so that's kind of that's where I think that's the, been the greatest um, evolution for us to really dig into hard issues, you know, um, to talk about, you know, uh, well, you know, we did a whole issue this year was uh, was on Weston Village and about, um, you know, healthcare um, and, 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 and how they have health care affects uh, different classes and, you know, um, you know, one of the articles by Eternity Martis was um, how racism makes you sick and just the disparities yeah. in our communities and that sort of thing. So, and she's actually, we just commissioned her, uh, the Joe Burke Journalism Fund, to write about um, uh, the racial disparity when it comes to jurors and what black defendants have to go through, uh, you know, when they're staring at all white juries and how that can. So, so it's nice to really kind of move it a bit in that direction mm-hmm. while still tell the stories of our shopkeepers and the eccentricities that exist in our world. But I, I, want, I want the West End Phoenix to be what the village voice was for me when I was a kid. You know, I didn't live in the East Village in New York City, but I went because I, I went to get that paper every weekend. I go to Lightman's on Young Street to get it because of Nat Hintaw, because of Robert Criscow, and because of Jeff Klein, like because all the great writers I love to read. So so I, I want to make it a community newspaper that can be read anywhere. And we have about 500 subscribers across the country. Wow. So there's that people are kind of drawn to it anyways. We just want to try to um, blow that up a little bit. So yeah, so you're doing uh, you're doing larger news stories and how they're affecting uh, the specific people in your neighborhood, in your area. Well, I think I just think we're doing um, showing or showing how they uh, um, affect people I just closer think, to it, home. Well, I, I think just we're digging a little, we're moving a little bit deeper into the soil. Yeah, you know, like we're yeah, we're really trying to drill a little bit deeper and doing a bit more investigative journalism that requires more man hours, right? It requires more man hours, which means it requires more money. Um, so we're we're able to do that because of our uh, because of our revenue right. and because of and greater support among our patrons and our donors and our subscribers. So. Yeah, so we're just trying to do a bit more of that, I think. Mm. Uh, let, let's talk about the Reostatics for a second here, or two. Okay. Uh, so the band forms in 1979, and as you say, you start playing shows around Toronto in 1980. Uh, as a guy who's uh, himself about to hit 50, I think back to those times where I am, uh, as a kid, I'm just beginning to discover uh, any interest in music. And... You know, that that time through the 80s where, you know, my family moves back to Toronto and I actually, I took a summer school course the first summer I was back called Explore Toronto. (laughs) And as time goes through my teens and I start finding out about, you know, clubs around the city and, and, you know, and what's going on with music around the city, you must have a list of clubs that you played or got to play wanted to play that are just gone now just lost in the in the sands of time are are there clubs that the rio statics when you formed uh dreamt of playing and did you get to play them are there places that you played and are best forgotten um oh Certainly, way more in the latter category, for sure. <laughs> you play, you play anywhere. You play. Yeah. Any, you were doing a Kensington issue um, uh, in April. April, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you know, I think of fucking. I think of the place like they weren't even clubs. One, well, the Quoc Tay was a Vietnamese restaurant. You went downstairs, dark after hours. Um, uh, and really, you know, uh, dangerous character. I, so it was hard to say. It was hard to know 
honestly, well, I think they were. I don't know if the characters at that time were dangerous or just like in costume. Like I did really, it was always really hard to tell. Mm. But, um, you know, and then you'd play, geez, you'd play living rooms, you'd play basements, you'd play, you know, community, the Desh Baguette Temple on Claremont um, was a big, it was a, <clears throat> just a hall. And, um, you know, we played there and one night a guy drew, drove his car through the, the two, the front, the glass doors, you know, <laughs> well, Mark Malibu and the Wasegas were on stage, you know, it was, that was dangerous. You know, um, <clears throat> I have a friend, I know a friend who was injured in that and his knee has never really been right since then. But, mm. um, so, so many, many of those. And on the other side of it, you know, the two big ones obviously were, uh, Massey Hall and Maple Leaf Gardens, I think were the two, the two big ones. And we got to play both of those. Um, uh, the first time we actually we performed, quote unquote, at Maple Leaf Gardens was uh, what well, wasn't a concert. It was um, <clears throat> we sang "O Canada" uh, before the Leafs uh, Nordiques game on November 26, 1992. And um, <clears throat> if you see, excuse me, the photo of that, um, we're all in tuxedos uh, singing "O Canada." And the reason we're all in tuxedos is because I was married the next day. And so everybody in the band, they were my wedding party. <laughs> they all had, they all had tuxedos. So, dude, you know, this is pre four tenors and we certainly didn't sound like that, but I, I often wonder what people thought when these four goofballs from Etobicoke <laughs> went out on the blue carpet, but we sent, we sounded great. And yeah. anyway, so that was like, wow, that was, that was such a great. Which is a great mind-blowing experience, and then we got to uh, tragically hip asked us to. You know, we went on, we had toured a couple of years with them, and mm-hmm. then uh, when we did their uh, Trouble with the Hen House tour, we saw that the last last the last two shows um, before we went to Newfoundland that was the true last true end of the tour. But the last true um, shows uh, on the mainland, as it were, were at Maple Leaf Gardens, and that was like that was pretty great. And one of the great things about that experience for me was. Um, I remember the the first night was really you know full of nerves and uh, uh, you know everything that that uh, the symbolic nature of you know playing a room where you know I had seen Rush you know in 1978 on their Farewell to Kings tour with Mario Molinaro me and me and him went to see them and you know I remember the you know the hippie that we were sitting next to asked offered us a joint and we were too scared to take it like <laughs> you know but those for, formative experiences and then we were playing on stage so but the next night. Um, I rode my bike to the gardens to the show Wow! and, uh, did the show and then rode my bike home. And that was, that was just beautiful, you know, to, to have those, uh, to feel confident enough, um, in, in what we were doing that I could be sort of casual about it, I guess. Um, and then, and then, and then a couple of great shows at Massey Hall, um, uh, over the last few years. So, so no, it's it's good to check those off for sure because those were those are those were just phenomenal experiences. When you look at Maple Leaf Gardens now, uh, do you have a hard time reconciling decades and decades of Maple Leaf memories with the fact that it's now uh, largely occupied by a grocery store? Well, the rink is still there. I've played on the rink. Um, what and the, the, and, and the the new the new ice pad? Uh, the, the, yeah, the the, the the ice the ice surface at uh, on Carlton Street there. Yeah. Um, it's simply they it's simply elevated, so you're actually skating and playing to the same uh, under the same roof. Yeah. That, uh, the, the, so and it's and, just and, a lot closer because, now. <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting though, but because that that ceiling is stayed intact. Um, the puck uh, sounds the same coming mm. off the board. So it's. I think they did right. I think yeah. they did a beautiful job. Yeah. No. No. It's fine. I I, don't, I remember peeking yeah. into like the open side of the building when they were doing some of the construction, and I mean, even now, going there now, I think the first time I went there was for uh, a, a Ring of Honor show, and right. being fascinated by the fact that you know like knowing where you're standing which a few years ago a few years earlier would have been mid-air how they put in floors to mm-hmm. maple leaf garden i was i was amazed <laughs> by it 
Yeah, it is pretty pretty crazy. Yeah. Hey? Well, and also, you know, uh, Boxing Day Wrestling, too, right? Like, that was, oh, man, yeah. that was, what a great tradition that was. What a great tradition. When I, how beautiful. Yeah. No, when I was going, it was, uh, when I started going, it was every three weeks they were running Maple Leaf Gardens. And, uh, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Wow, nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, you mentioned uh, going on tour with the Tragically Hip, and I, I'm wondering what you can tell us about uh, touring with and performing with the late Gord Downey. Um, we, uh, it was nice. I think we got to do those tours at a time when um, their crowd was changing a little bit, right? Like they, their their crowd was maturing. I, I suppose they were much more accepting and open. Uh, minded about um, bands that they were paired with, um, so uh, so no, it was really uh, it was really lovely and really pleasant, and um, and Gord was a great uh, you know uh, just a great supporter and a great host mm-hmm. and um, a lovely uh, presence, you know, a great guy to be around, um, and really. Um, would spend a lot we'd we would all spend a lot of time together which was really nice he wasn't you know he wasn't a go back and hide in his hotel room guy um and he certainly he he wasn't uh you know do not enter this dressing room guy he was very available and um social Mm -hmm. um yeah and friendly if you couldn't ask for a better better host um and a better friend in that regard too so um, yeah, no, I'm, it's, uh, I miss them a lot. Uh, you know, just to, just to pick up the phone and talk about stupid stuff, you know, um, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's really tough to think about, um, that, you know, not being available yeah. to me. And, um, but, uh, but in terms of gigging, it was great. And also, you know, friendly rivalries are good too, because they push each other to, you push each other to get better and, to you know, um, uh, to, to reach beyond your means a little bit. And that's always nice to have. It's always nice to have bands like that. That was what it was like in the early nineties among a lot of Toronto bands. Right. Like I remember going in to record whale music and Michael Philip Voyevoda, our producer, I just finished Gord by Baronic ladies, Gordon and change of hearts smile. And he played those records for us before we started whale music. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what, what are you trying to make? How are you trying, are you trying to embarrass us? <laughs> because those records were so good, but I knew what he was doing. It was brilliant. He was like, "This is what these guys did. Like, like this is what they did." Can you? Now it's your turn. And so, for that record, you know, we made I think there's what fourteen, fifteen songs on that record, and we worked so hard because we didn't want to be embarrassed because we knew these other records were going to come out. So, um, and that was great to have. And I'm sure those bands they say the same thing. Well, it worked because you end up uh, you end up in in Bob uh, Mercero's book of the <laughs> top 100 Canadian albums. You end up with uh, is it a genie that you uh, that you get for um... for for Claire? And yeah, whale, uh, yes, yeah, whale music, the movie, and stuff. I think they called it a genie. Yeah, I, I the, right the names here. have the names have changed. Yeah, oh, see now you've 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 jumped forward to one of my questions. You've 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 got at least one genie. You've got at least one Gemini. Are these awards displayed in the Benini home? Um, yeah, uh, they're around. <laughs> they're, they're around. Like, they're not top of the mantle, but they're 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 around. Yes, yeah, yes, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Yeah. I, we, when, we, when we when we got the. Gemini. Oh, I want a genie for Hockey Nomad. That's for my movie. Right. But um, but the the Gemini was given to us, or the genie. I can't remember. Anyways, one of them was given to us by Gordon Pinsett, which was really cool. Oh, very nice. Yeah, yeah. That was nice to have him there. Very can- iconic yeah. Canadian actor. Um, you yeah, mentioned. We, we talk about uh, Gord Downey, and you mentioned earlier, and I quote, 17 weirdo musicians around the city. Who who are those weirdo musicians, and how did you connect? I'm. Do you have a Mendelssohn Joe story? 
you know, do you, do you have an encounter with Nash the Slash that you want to tell us about? Oh, uh, well, very few that I could probably mention on this podcast, <laughs> um, especially when it comes to Nash. But, um, well, Joe, Joe, like anyone, no, it's okay. Joe, uh, Nash is an incredible human being. Boy, yeah, boy. He, he was. Um, amazing, amazing human being. Um, but, and they both, they, they both are, uh, or uh, in Nash's case were, but Joe, no, I was like anybody with Joe. I would get, uh, uh, he would send um, letters, write letters to me. I, when I wrote for the star, mm-hmm. he would send me a letter a week, basically, and stuff too. Um, and and I've had you know had chance to chat with him a little bit. But um, those guys, I'm trying to think. No, I think when I think of bands, I think more like, um, geez, I think of uh, oh, well, I guess uh, you know bands like the File Tones and mm-hmm. the. And the um, dishes and uh, rough trade, um, Martha and the muffins, um, you know. Uh, oh, these, these names, these names sing to me. Yeah, like literally, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, no, and you know, and those those bands were um, just really interesting, and um, they were not big, but kind of big, like they, they were played on CFMY, right? Yeah, yeah. That was like, oh wow, they were playing, like, and we, we would be young musicians uh, thinking to ourselves, oh man, if only we could get a song on CFMY, like, wouldn't that be fucking amazing? And then we went to, when we had our first demo tape, we drove me, Dave Crosby, Tim Vesely, uh, Rod Westlake, we drove to uh, Brampton and uh, we knocked we just went up the steps of the old house where CFMY was, and we knocked on the door. Okay. And David Martin came down in his shorts and sat on the steps, and we gave him the cassette tape. And he said, you know, thanked us, thanked us for bringing by the cassette. And as we were driving back from Brampton uh, into Etobicoke, he played it on the radio. Wow. And it was like, holy shit. You know, so the fact that he did that really nice thing yeah. to a band speaks volumes about who he is but how important those steps are for you yeah. it doesn't take much and that's what i always say you know like somebody sends you a, a poem somebody sends you a an article somebody sends you a demo tape somebody's just like you just have to just have to give it you know you just have to respond and, and give it give it a quick look or give it a listen yeah. and uh that that just really helps so so yeah so it was nice to have um have people like that uh, really, really uh, is, be there for us? Is that the moment for you guys as a band? Is there a, is there a moment where you say, you know, uh, the first time you think to yourself, "This is working. This is happening. We're making it, or we've made it." Is there a moment or a series of moments? I, I, w- I would think it would be in a weird way. I would answer that question by saying it's actually the opposite experience that really. Uh, builds builds you. Um, I write about this in On a Cold Road, but when we were um, uh, opening, we were went to Vancouver. Um, we were doing it to, or I want to say it was 1991. We were um, going to do a Vancouver, a BC tour. And while we were out there, the Bare Naked Ladies were headlining at the Pacific Coliseum. And so um, they asked if we wanted to open for them at the show. Yeah. And uh, we were like, and 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 we had we had played. Boy, I think, I think the more most people we'd ever played to at that point was maybe two hundred people at the Rivoli or something. Like it was, we hadn't played mm-hmm. um, big rooms, and we were going to play this hockey rink, and we were like, no problem. Like, how hard can it be, right? <laughs> and um, so we went up there. Everybody set up their gear, and we went up there, and. Uh, uh, Martin started uh, the um, set with loop, guitar loop, uh, that he engineered on his pedals, and we were all waiting side stage. We had this grand plan. We'll open it. We'll build it. We'll all go on one by one, and this would be fantastic. And the stage was completely dark, and we told our lighting person, who was, I think, just a friend in Vancouver, not even a lighting director that we toured with, but we sort of said, you know, as everybody comes on, turn, keep it dark, and then when everybody's out there, turn on the lights, so... Our drummer, Dave Clark, went first. So he was going to play along to the loop. And he gets out on stage, jumps out, out on stage, so excited, and like trips over 
one of the cables and completely disconnects Martin's pedal loop. <laughs> <laughs> and the stage goes silent, like, you know, 10,000 people, 12,000 people. Stage goes completely silent, no sound, no music. Martin scrambles up on stage, tries to reconnect the the pedal works. It's a, it's a spaghetti of cables anyways. Yeah. So it's pretty hard and it's dark and nobody can get word to the lighting director to turn on the fucking light. So not, not even a single light. So it was, so we played, I think we ended up doing like six songs. We dragged our ass back to the hotel room. People were like, like vomitous, like people were pale and green and like, this was it. It was over oh, man <laughs> it was disaster and something something about it though something about it told me that it, it was significant because it would never get that bad and i remember saying that to the guys i'm not trying to blow my own horn because i don't know where this came from yeah. but i remember saying to the guys guys this is never get this is never gonna happen again like this is never gonna get this bad this is it's it's upward from here and you know what like once everybody kind of hear, heard that like our friend jay scott came backstage and he was actually laughing yeah i think that's maybe why it triggered that thought in me because jay was just like ha right he was like ah and we were like we're dying but he was laughing lit a joint we smoked a joint we jammed we didn't even watch the bearing late we stayed in our room like even though those guys are our friends but yeah. we hung out in our dressing room got high played some songs and it was great and you know what and it was just great to use that horrible experience to as a way of learning from it right so that's when i knew if we could survive that i knew we were going to be okay okay now i have to ask what is for me a very personal question about the band. Yeah. When Martin Taylor comes into the studio with a song about an alien invasion of Herb Tarlix. Oh yeah. What is the <laughs> band's reaction? <laughs> Cuz for I mean well, we for, were you we if this and that wouldn't have been the first time, you know, there would have been this unusual Yeah. brilliantly unusual uh confection um, but I mean, for uh, him to come say, "Hey, I got a song about the sales manager from that sitcom WKRP." Like, wh well, what do the rest of you say? Oh no, we never ask questions of that. <laughs> we were like, "Fuck yeah!" We were like, "We tried every, we you know, we tried everything." Like, we, we there was never too much discussion firsthand. It was like, "What do you got?" Let's hear it. Let's try it. Like, yeah. very, you know, we weren't, we weren't sort of, in many ways, we weren't guardians of taste either. <laughs> uh, so a lot kind of, a lot ended up coming through the door that was like, but, but yeah, no, because you, and also when you have like four writers, it's like, um, you know, why would you not want to sort of absorb, you know, play with all that quantity? It's a great problem to have. So, um, you know, uh, it's a great song anyways, but he, it's, it's interesting, like, even when we did talk a little bit later about that song, about how really it's a metaphor for, you know, commercialism and, you know, rising corporate control, mm -hmm. right, in our world. That's what that's, and that's why at the end of that song and at the end of the video, it really gets so pretty creepy, you know, that this, you know, our world has been converted, you know, into this this mad landscape of people just trying to sell you shit, right. And control you. Yeah. And that's, that, that's the, that's the kind of the deeply, um, you know, affecting, um, part of that, of that song. I love doing that. I love doing that song and song. And also like another thing to remember too, with, with all of our compositions, I mean, most of our compositions is entirely true is we allowed each other a lot of space, within the song to kind of inform our own individual musical personality, mm -hmm. right? So I could find my way in with a guitar part that I was allowed to play and allowed to choose and because we trusted each other to do that. Like Northern Wish, you know, which uh, was part of the Hockey Night in Canada opening on Saturday, you know, that was like really kind of just a Puff the Magic Dragon chord progression when it first came in and then it was taken and it's like 
Tim and Dave, the rhythm section, they're playing like, I don't know, they're playing in like five or something. Like it's really, they're probably actually playing in four, but their accents are on like the five and the seven. Um, and, and, and with Martin's vocal, like I was, it was so great to be able to just kind of give him the vocal and then he would, he would play with it and make it become something I couldn't possibly have ever, um, confected on my own. So that's what a band should be, right? Did, uh, did you actually get uh, just to the song itself for a yeah, second? Yeah. Did you actually, sure. uh, were you on set with Frank Bonner? Cause you, you bring in Frank Bonner, the actual Herb Tarlick. And the video itself is just frigging brilliant. Do you get to meet Frank Bonner? Or um, are you filming separately from him? So, um, okay. So we, because it was called the Tarlex, our manager, Sean Cartier, Six Shooter Records, was like, hey, what if we got Frank, Herb, yeah. to star in the video? We were like, great. She was like, I'm going to check it out. So she found his agent, and um, uh, now now uh, uh, Frank had been retired mm-hmm. um, uh, for a few years, just sort of freshly retired, I think, and certainly hadn't been Herb forever. Yeah. And um, and uh, called them, and his agent said, you know, okay, I'll, I'll let him know, blah 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 blah, and didn't hear anything. And then finally, uh, you know, uh, weeks later, got a call from from Frank's people saying, sure. Can, can you fly me up? Put me in a nice hotel. We'll do it. So it was like, great. So when, when I remember first meeting him and uh, thinking to myself, he isn't, this, he is, does not look good. Like I was like, <laughs> he, it was a lesson for me. I don't know actors, right? Yeah. So I was like, he just seems like a schlump to me. It's like, oh, how, this is not going to go well. Then of course realizing, right, he's acting. So, um, the, the next day, I, I just remember talking to him in the chair as we were getting made up, and he said, you know, Dave, I wasn't going to do this, but I played the song to my kids, mm-hmm. and his kids really liked the song, and they were like, Dad, you'd be crazy not to do this. So so he said yes, So, um, and I was there. I remember so vividly in my mind, I remember him putting on the plaid blazer for the first time since he walked <laughs> off the WKRP set, yeah. and when he put it on, he could see his physically reacting to it. Right, like it all kind of swept over him, and he was, uh, and he was Herb. So, uh, what a lovely guy, though. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful dude. You know, uh, Bill Clinton and Mark McGuire is two close confidants. Um, he grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, um, just a fascinating life. And he, one quick anecdote. Uh, now that we're talking, he, I asked him how he got the gig in WPRP, and he said um, he was, he was. Uh, he was doing a play in, in L.A. Um, uh, he was playing a Welsh minor, I think a, like a, a striking Welsh minor. Mm. And afterwards, the producers of WKRP came up to him and said, you know, we've got this we've got this character. He's a he's a, you know, kind of a lizardy, um, you know, a lascivious uh, sa- salesman. And, uh, you know, we're interested. Would you like to come and read for it? And, and, and Frank was like, sure, but how did you get that from what I just played? Right? It's like, <laughs> how do you go from Herb Tarlick to a, from a, a Welsh, a, 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 a Welsh a striking minor to a, the character, character of Herb Tarlick? Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, that, that was, those are great times for sure. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Um, many a Toronto, uh, exotic dancer. He said, not wanting to actually say the word stripper for some reason today. Huh. Uh, many a Toronto stripper has, uh, has had to get naked around 2 a.m. because I felt like hearing the Tarleks at work. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, all right. So, uh, with, you know, a few personnel changes, the band is largely together on, for, almost three decades uh until 2007 you uh, what finally leads to the breakup is there a is there ever a you know a sting andy summers uh copeland style fist fight on tour or does the band just say i i'm i'm tired of looking at your faces <laughs> what what leads to the breakup the first one yeah well there's been a few um <laughs> Well, 2007 is when the band really 
calls it quits yeah, no, for almost a decade. That so. was that was in Edmonton. You know, that started in Edmonton. Uh, it was Tim Vesely's idea. You know, he was like, um, and uh, you know, it was uh, we like I like you know, forty one years this year, right? So, yeah. so nineteen eighty to two thousand and seven. My God. <laughs> That's a long time, dude. Yeah, you know, um, uh, and uh, you know, we um, we 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 did uh, part of my 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 dream, and I think, and I think this uh, we were successful in in terms of uh, our vision, in terms of what we wanted to do mm-hmm. with the band. But I don't think we were. We necessarily, quote unquote, profited from it. And, um, you know, like uh, establishing, you know, a Canadian voice in our music. And, you know, remember in our in, in the 80s, 86, 87, you know, we didn't have a major record deal. Like they, the reason and the reason we didn't is because record labels were afraid to sign bands that with Canadian identities. Everything back then was meant to sound like. You came from London or New York, right? Yeah. Domestic sounds didn't sell. International sounds did. That's why you had a lot of sound-like bands. And if, you know, Duran Duran was popular, then you had, you know, Platinum Blonde, so yeah. on and so forth. It was, it was, it was sound-like groups. So um, we fought through that, and then it was the Americans that signed us. It wasn't, you know, what in a major label. It wasn't the Canadians. It was, it was Seymour Stein and Sire Records and Warner Bros. in the States that signed us. It wasn't... Canadian, it wasn't a Canadian major record label. So um, that happened, but we were still too weird for radio. Commercial radio had not opened yet. You know, um, they 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 would have played the Tragically Hip, but um, even then, you know, the Hip's reputation was built on pretty just solid, you know, rock songs, you know. Um, and, and then they played the other stuff because just the demand was so great from the fan base. But it was so stiff and so tight. We weren't able to really, like everything we forged, it's, we forged through like a deeply devoted fandom, you know, a very, very strong grassroots love of the band. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's never, never been by, through commercial means, I don't think. So, but the, that, that made it hard for us, you know, for to continuing to tour here. Um, We'd never really had the durability to tour uh, in the States, you know, and frankly, never really had the desire because um, we'd seen bands go down there and chant everything and abandon their fan base here for that. And we just didn't, it wasn't anything we wanted to do. We also had a lot of stuff cooking in Canada too, individually um, and, and collectively. And we wanted to, we wanted to just train we wanted to write Canadian songs for Canadians largely and that, and that kind of killed through. But so that made it tough. So that stressed the band. And then that's where that kind of 2007, that's why that happened. Yeah. Um, but it's good. You know, there's been, and we need, and you know, really what we should have done is said, let's, let's just, reti- let's retire for a year or let's take a break for a year. But we didn't, we weren't smart enough to do that. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, and in the end, you know that those breaks were good um and it was an act really in the end it was an act of self-preservation i think too and the fact that if if the world gets back to normal and we can all kind of keep hanging in there what a what a gift to be able to play 40 years later with the same band and the same people you know that you played with him when you were a teenager yeah and that's Great. So every time we play, it's sort of a celebration of that. I think, and that's, I think people like that too. And I, I think, and I always said to those guys too that you know, the, I think kind of the more we hang around, like the reputation, it's not going to decrease. Like it's, it's only become more interesting to people. I think. Too. Yeah. So, well, is is yeah. that is that how the band uh, reunites uh, uh, almost a decade later? Because you. In the meantime, after 2007, after that breakup, you form your own band, you write a dozen books, you you, you yeah. still play the occasional gig or two together over the years, but what is it that gets you back together and back into a studio? Yeah, well, we had done that. The, we had reprised music inspired by the group of seven at the art gallery 
Um, we did three shows. It was the 20th anniversary, uh, so that's 2014, 2015, 2015, 20th anniversary of releasing that um, album. And so uh, uh, we staged those shows. Um, they were beautiful. Like they were beautiful people. It was so great to to have have you know those rooms filled and have people. Like I remember we were coming out of the dressing room. And to get to the stage, you kind of had to walk around the Walker Court. Mm-hmm. And I remember at one point we kind of appeared sort of through these columns as a, as we were making our way on stage, and the audience erupted in applause. Just see, like, get it, getting a glimpse of us. And I remember thinking, "Holy fuck!" Because people, there were there were kids whose parents played our music to them, who were now teenagers and young adults who never got a chance to see us. So that that was really nice, you know. And you know, uh, my kids got a chance to see it. They had fucking no idea what I what I did or what the band <laughs> was. Yeah. So um, that that really that's really been nice. So those shows went really well. And um, Kevin Hearn and Hugh Marsh became pretty much permanent, solid members of the band. Mm-hmm. We had this mega expanded lineup. Dave Clark was back drumming for us. And it was like, oh, okay. And now, now when you know, up until COVID, when we were perform- when we performed as a six piece, it really sounds like a like it sounds like a properly evolved band. Yeah. We didn't want to be. Here's our eight songs that you all recognized. We want wanted to use our musical capabilities to push it further, and that's what we tried to do with the record. Very good. Um, now your first book. Is on a cold road, Road, tales of adventure in Canadian rock, and it's basically uh, a road diary. Yes. Who tells you, uh, you know, hey Dave, you could write a book, or where does that where does that come from inside yourself? Where's the genesis of the idea? I should make this into a book. These stories. Um. Well, I'd always wanted to write a book ever since I was four, you know, because when you're a kid, books are the one thing, your books and your toys are the only things you own. Yeah. Like, they're they're the only things that, they're the only things like your parents will entrust you with as well, right? You have such an intimate relationship with with your books when you're growing up. And um, so I'd always wanted to and stuff, but, um, and I'd always written as well. but I wrote that tour diary for the Toronto Star as part of the What's On section because I had a column uh, with the Star ninety two ninety three, mm-hmm. and um, so did that did that did that sort of a tour diary for them on the uh, for the What's On section and people really liked it. Um, but in terms of going from that to having a book published, a lot of it was Paul Corrington, who was a uh, you know a mentor of mine, the great writer, and I got to know him because we named our album Whale Music after his book. And we became friends. And so when I sort of was talking to him about an idea, Paul was like, oh, here's my agent. Here's my publisher. You know, here's here's my lawyer. Here's my accountant. This is what you need. And talk to these people and blah, blah, blah. So and Paul actually um, published me in a collection of writing called Original Six, which was hockey stories that came out on McClellan Stuart Reed books before on a cold road. So he got me in the door. And, um, and that, uh, and then McClellan and Stuart, like, honestly, uh, God bless them. They're such an incredible experience working for them, Doug Gibson and Dinah Forbes. But they only printed, they, they printed that book in paperback, a trade paperback. They never printed a hardcover version because I don't think they thought it would sell. That's my sense, <laughs> anyways. Right? They, it was a cheap trade paperback. Yeah. And then it just, like, it went crazy and everybody, read it and bought it and stuff too. So I was like, aha. Um, so, so, but, but it was, it was great. The success of that book led me to, to do all those subsequent books as well. And having, having a great publisher makes it, makes a big difference too. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, listen, I, I remember picking that book up for the first time, you know, I was putting the four ways on at university in Dundas outside the publishers, McClellan Stewart's office there. And, Dinah, my editor, bringing it down for me and, you know, smelling it, smelling <laughs> the book. Oh, I've done Smelled that. Smelled so good, yeah. I've done course, the, fir- right? the first comic book I, <laughs> of mine that got 
into print. That was the first goddamn thing I did. Oh, so great. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> Just for sure. take a big huff of comic book. Yeah, yeah I've, man, I've been there. I've done that. <laughs> so great. So, so great. Your, your second book, and this is the one that's always fascinated me, is Tropic of Hockey. And I, how do you go from, I'm going to write stories about what's going on around me. This is, this is, you know, not, not that you're a paper boat in, in, uh, in on a cold road, but you are, this is your daily life. You're documenting your daily life. It's already happening. How does Tropic yeah. of Hockey happen? And you end up playing, playing ice hockey in, in China or of all places, Dubai, and how do you tell the band, hey, I'm going to screw off for a while because I want to go play hockey in vampire-infested parts of Romania? Right. <laughs> um, well, uh, they were aware of my love of hockey. I think partly oh, that had something sure. to do with it. But, but, but um, no, I would do those trips in between t- touring, basically. Oh. So if, like, like, I remember we played the Horseshoe. We did a 12-nighter at the Horseshoe. And the, so we played Monday, trying to think, we played Monday, I can't remember, we, we fin- finished on a Sunday, we did two shows on a Sunday, mm-hmm. and the next day I flew to Mongolia <laughs> with Mike Downey and Nick DePoncier, and for, to film uh, The Hockey Nomad, which was uh, the movie that was made out of Tropic Hockey, and I was like, this is the fucking life I want. Yeah. Like, this is the life I want. You know, I want to be able to do these shows and then I want to go and get on a plane and go play hockey in Ulan Batter. And we did, and I did. So if I ever complain, tell me to shut the fuck up. Yeah. I have nothing to fucking complain. I have nothing to complain about. So, um, no, so those trips to Transylvania and Dubai and, and China, that was, um, we would tour, we would make a record, and then we would have, you know, the record was getting pressed or whatever, or um, there was the time and I would I would book those sort of travels. No, I was I would write um, and even when we were touring, you know, when I was doing my column for the star, I had a portable typewriter that I would that I would uh, hammer out my columns and we would sh- we would arrive in Fernie and I would go to the library and fax my column um, to the star using the fax machine at the library. So I got good at multitasking pretty early, early on, and um, and that's how uh, that's how a lot of those a lot of those uh, trips were were allowed to happen. So I, I know you've you know you've written a lot about uh, music and your own touring, and you've written about baseball, you've written about soccer, you've written about uh, you've written about a, 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 you know about Canada, but. One of the bo- the books that fascinate me the most personally, my my own short background as a sports journalist, my mm-hmm. my, my brother being you know th- almost thirty years in as a sports journalist and a hockey mm-hmm. broadcaster, are the hockey books. And my brother, uh, when I told him that I was going to be uh, talking to you, my my brother's instant reaction was, "Ask him about Keon and me." Ask him about Keon and me, and that, I think that's his favorite of your books. And, uh, well, for those of you who aren't hockey aficionados, I should say that uh, Dave Keon is the longtime former captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, through the 60s and early 70s. Um, and uh, Dave Keon very much carried the team on his back and then had a huge falling out with a notorious owner, Harold Ballard left the team, never looked back, like uh, would not participate. Even after he left hockey, would not participate in Maple Leafs activities. Uh, the wrestling equivalent of Dave Keon would be Bruno Sammartino. Tell, well, I'm going to I'm gonna let you tell it. Tell <laughs> us about the book, Keon and Me, The Search for the Lost Soul of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, sure. I, uh, I, um... I kind of wanted to write, I wanted to write a book about youth, um, you know, like uh, Scrubs on Skates and Boy at Least Camp, those Scott Young books. You know, I wanted to kind of write a, like a mature kind of version of that in a way. Um, 
and um, uh, I uh, my son was 11 actually when I was writing it, and um, a, a lot of a lot of what happens in that book happens when I was 11, grade seven. So um, it was interesting. I was able to kind of look at him and study him a little bit. Um, and he would hate that if I said I was studying him, but I kind of was. Um, but um, it, but so I, I was able to sorry, I was able to write about him uh, right right from perspective. And because he was that age, I was able to kind of remember what it was was to be like that. But but um, that one took a long time to come together. For people who don't know, it's um it's a dual narrative. It's um me writing um, about myself as an 11 year old in third person alternated with chapters of me writing about myself in the first person as a 50-year-old. And um, both chapters, one, one, one half is focused on my um, love for Keon on, and the Leafs in, in 1974 while being bullied at, uh, at middle school um, uh, by the villainous Roscoe. Um, and in the, in the adult uh, uh, parts of the book, it's me uh, searching for Dave Keon, who had been disgraced uh, by the Leafs, and just really wanting to find him to tell him my story and about how I didn't stand up to my bully until he fought Greg Shepard of the Boston Bruins, um, the first ever fight he was in in the NHL. Because Keon, I didn't fight back because Keon didn't fight. Like, he you know, played 20 years in the league. And he was only ever in one fight. He really played the game the right way, um, his way. And so that's that's the way that, that book kind of works. That's how that book works. And um, and I'm really proud of it, you know. And and uh, it was one. It was nice because it was one of those. I had a plan for the way the book would would work, and I achieved that that plan. Um, that's not always the case, you know. Um, often you have to kind of twist and bend and. Um, especially when, uh, when a book is kind of narratively conceptual. <clears throat> so, um, you know, people are really fond of that book and, you know, Keon, Keon has read it and there's only one part that pissed him off. Uh, oh. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even about him. It was about a guy from the, it was, it was a throwaway anecdote about a GM for the Ottawa Nationals who had wanted to uh, pursue uh, sign Keon. Yeah. Uh, uh, when he when he uh, when the, when it looked as like he was going to leave the Leafs, and anyways, he was like, "No, I mis- misrepresented this guy." Um, but but other than that, no, it's it's uh, it's been uh, and I, I'd like to think you know it played a large role in him just deciding that uh, oh okay, I've meant more as a Leaf to generations of kids who watched him than simply you know uh simply as a as a guy with 14 on his back who played for a professional sports franchise it's more than that right it's culture and it's life and it's humanity and i think that made it easier for him to to come back into the fold so it's nice to have him around again were were you in the building when his uh number 14 was raised to the rafters I was not. No, it's hard to get in that rink. Yeah. <laughs> but no, no, I, I wasn't. And also, you know, I'm. Uh, yeah, you write a bunch I, of no, you write a bunch of books about them, and you can't get in the building. <laughs> oh, I can. No, the Leafs. No, the Leafs are. Um, I, I have no problem with the Leafs in terms of. No, they've been they've been good to me in the past for sure, yeah. and I can get into the press box. I think I was busy. I was I was doing something or whatever. But, okay. Um, yeah. So what what comes next for you? I mean, is it enough for you to maintain the many, many plates you already have spinning in the air, or is there something else that Dave Bedini wants to conquer? Um, well, no, I think I think I'm deep in the paper right now, and I want yeah. to sort of see where that that can go um, because we're you know we're part of the local media landscape. And uh, now, and um, it's an interesting landscape, always shifting. And I think there's a great need for um, local news, local journalism, more and more. Every day, it becomes more and more important. And so, yeah, so I, I really love build, you know, love where we at, we're at with that and this team. And I love, geez, I've met so many interesting people from writers to, we have over 100 volunteer delivery people. I've 
they're incredible and and we love them and met them and you know our patrons and our subscribers and stuff and just interesting people and opened up to this whole new world so i want to live in this for a little bit longer still and i won't be able to write a book while i do this but hopefully the paper can get to a point where it's healthy enough that i can maybe you know take those uh take those two months like i did when i was traveling before and and try to do a bit of work on that end so but but this this end of it really uh uh, satisfies a lot of a lot of what I got from writing anyway. So yeah. and then the band will will you know when things open up again we'll be able to we'll still be able to gig. That's easy. The, the gigs don't start till eleven o'clock. So you know that's <laughs> fine. Fine. Just send the van send the van over and you know hop in and plug in and it's that's the prerogative of somebody who's played for forty years. It's not you know any rocket science anymore to us. So tremendous. All yeah. right. Dave Bedini, please tell people where they can find you online, where they can find the West End Phoenix, and uh, maybe if they're interested, how they can get their hands on a copy or two. Well, the next issue is going to be special for many reasons. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, both of us are going to be in there, so it's going to be great. Um, and uh, just go to westendphoenix.com. All the information is there, and you can... We mail everywhere in the world, deliver across the city, and uh, 75 bucks. Um, and it's great. Uh, you know, it's a great thing. So that's uh, that's really where you can find me these days. There's there's Reostatics websites out there with a lot of information as well, but not, not much is cooking. You can follow me on Twitter, Hockey S, David Dini on Instagram, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah. I appreciate the time. That was a really fun conversation. No, thank you very, very totally. much for doing it. And hey, I mean... Thank you for thinking of me for an article for the West End Phoenix. I uh, uh, I had to I had to overcome a little bit of last minute uh, stage fright and say yes, yes. I I told the man I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. But <laughs> I uh, I'm very very much looking forward to seeing the the entire article. And you you got three other really fantastic young mm. uh young wrestling talents from around town stratosphere uh jody threat and uh gabriel fuerza so uh i'm 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 looking forward to seeing the whole thing oh uh, yeah they seem great um yeah me too it's it's and Emma Healy did a beautiful job and you sound yes. great and 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 th- thanks so much for that oh my pleasure and thank you for coming on the handsome genius club radio show pleasure guys gals and non-binary pals that is going to wrap up the show for today so glad dave bedini was able to join us on the show uh remember that you can find me on all your social media at my name is kingdom twitter instagram youtube twitch and the all-important patreon please sign up for the patreon uh it is as little as two bucks a month uh uploaded a bunch of good stuff this week get in on all of it for as little as two bucks a month at patreon.com slash my name is kingdom. Um, there's also the uh, Teespring store, teespring.com slash stores slash my name is kingdom. It's all in the show notes. Follow the link tree in the show notes and you'll find all that mess. Uh, tomorrow is Friday. It is a brand new uh, Patreon exclusive episode and it is all crazy vince mcmahon stories (laughs) so uh take a look for that and uh we'll be back here on monday with uh you know more of this (laughs) all right kids take care of one another find some good trouble to get into together your uncle kingdom loves you bye